A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base, meaning bad, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Part of the reason that we're studying Isaiah chapter 40 and following is to reclaim a greater vision of the grandeur of our God. Our God is a God that defies neat and tidy explanations. Our God is a God who bursts through categories and expectations. And that's something we as a people need to reclaim. In fact, last week we saw that our collective view of God, no matter who we are, is much too small. Today, we're going to see that we can and must come. We can and must come to this great and glorious God of all might. In fact, we must come to Him. The One who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with the span invites us to come. The One who says the nations are like a drop in a bucket and as they are counted as dust in the scales invites us to come. The One who calls out the stars, their host by number, calling them all by name, invites us to come. You see, to, to reclaim a high and lofty view of God, we must not imagine that God is remote or distant or unaware. See, when our view of God is too small, He's not going to make much of a difference in our lives. A small God doesn't have time to help us. He's too busy naming the stars. And if he had time, he probably wouldn't care about us too much. But that's not the nature of who our God is. He is high and lifted up and with us in our troubles. He is almighty and the one who strengthens his people. He is the Lord of armies and he is the one who is the Lord of the small details of our lives. And we must come to Him. We must come to Him as a people. We must come to Him regularly as a people to experience Him. And by experience Him, I mean something very explicit. I mean we come to Him and experience the goodness and the blessing that comes from His hand for us. We must come near. Our God is not remote. Our God is not preoccupied. Our God is not distracted. Our God is not too busy. Our God bids us come. And so, to come, we go to His Word. Now, biblical prophecy is different than other, diff other genres in the Bible. So, it's different than we used to, so I'm going to take it in chunks. I'm going to take it in chunks. We're going to see that we're called each to come and experience Him. The first point is a summons to judgment in verses 1 through 7. I'll read beginning in verse 1 down to verse 7. God's Word says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw together for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. 
He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith who smooths with the hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of his soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Let's pray. Lord, please, as we encounter you through your word, I pray each of us here, whether we are believers or not, would be emboldened to come to you and experience you. I pray for that to be the effect of this sermon. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This summons to judgment is a summons first to, did you see, to the coastlands. Look at verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. So he's addressing, for Isaiah, the coastlands are the far-off lands, the coastlands of the ancient Near East. And the, whole, the Lord is putting the whole, known, the whole known world on notice and inviting them to come to be judged. And this is unexpected. Now, what he does is he's announcing what he's going to do to bring judgment to the world, to the ancient Near Eastern world. And that's what verses 2 through 4 are all about. Now, remember where we are in Isaiah. Isaiah has just told the nation of Israel, which is essentially just Jerusalem at this point, that they will be destroyed and taken off into exile, and then they will, at a future date, return. That nation that destroyed Jerusalem is Babylon, and Babylon was the national power that no other nation could withstand at the time. And the Lord is announcing that somebody is coming, and he's going to pound Babylon into dust. Verse 2, who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? Now, whoever this is, he's the man, right? Look at this. He gives up nations before him. He tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust before his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He is, he is pushing through nations and conquering peoples. And Isaiah, what he's doing here is he's describing a man who history calls Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great was the leader of Persia, and he would rise up and establish the largest empire to date. Now, just for a frame of reference, uh, Cyrus ruled over a larger empire than even Alexander the Great. So he knew what he was doing when it came to conquering people. The other remarkable thing is that Isaiah is speaking and telling the people that Cyrus is going to arise 100 years before he was born. Talk about calling your shot. That's what's going on here. The Lord is indeed the one who sent Babylon off into the pages of history because we heard last week that he's the one who brings princes to nothing. If he can bring a prince to nothing, he can raise up someone to something and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. 
One moment, Babylon as at the top of the food chain in the ancient Near East. The next moment, gone. And Cyrus would be that person to send the Jews from exile back to Jerusalem. But that's another story for another day. But notice what the Lord does. He takes credit for what Cyrus is doing. Verse 4, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. See, what happened here is the coastlands were summoned and they were warned that a judgment was coming and the living God was going to judge the ancient Near Eastern people with Cyrus the Great. This living God was not a regional deity with limited jurisdiction. He is the Lord first and last. This God is not small. So how do the coastlands respond, right? How do these people who do not follow God, how do they respond? Do they come to the Lord in dust cloth, with, with ashes and sackcloth? Do they come in repentance? Do they ask for mercy? Do they say, please help us? No. What do they do? Well, they do what people do in times of crisis. They form alliances and they worship idols. They form alliances. That's what they do in verse 6. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. These are nations talking to one another. So essentially the nations hear that something's going to happen. They see Cyrus arising and they tempt, they, they, they just decide, let's join together to fend off this threat. Let's have an, have an alliance and let's join our forces to fight Cyrus. And so they invested their strength, their mutual strength in these kinds of alliances which is a losing proposition. They would be destroyed. We do the same thing when we invest our hopes in people like doctors and lawyers or schools or presidents instead of the Lord first and last. Along with fleeing to their friends and making alliances, the other thing that people do in times of crisis is turn to their idols. And this is exactly what they did. This is why we have this description in verse 7. The craftsmen strengthens the goldsmith. Those are the two people who are involved in making idols. He smooths with the hammer and strikes with the anvil and says of the soldering, it is good. Now, if you know your Bible, in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we hear a refrain of it is good, right? The Lord creates all things and it is good. It is good. It is good. And here we have this aping parody of the creation account when someone creates a godless idol in verse 7 saying it is good. You see what they're doing? They are investing their hopes in these idols that they have to nail down so that they don't get taken away. And they pronounce over these idols that they had formed the same words God, God pronounced over creation. It was good, but it certainly was not. Now, we might not worship statues, but we do worship things that are not God. Most of the time, we end up worshiping ourselves and our own ideas. And those can be idols just the same. The ideas or the ideals that we worship can be things like, be true to yourself. You are how you feel. Don't let anyone impose their truth on you. See, we can affix those ideas to our souls, 
thinking they are the things that provide protection. But those things, those ideas, those idols only hasten death. Friend, if you are trusting in anything or anyone outside of Jesus Christ, you are literally courting disaster. Just like here in the pages of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 41, God announces beforehand that a conqueror is coming. And he is coming, and he is going to judge the ancient Near East. If we kept going through this Bible, there's another announcement of another conqueror who's coming. And he's much more powerful and much greater than Cyrus the Great. His name is Jesus. Jesus the conqueror is coming back. And he's going to have a sword in his hand. And he's going to be riding a white horse. And he is going to take everyone who is opposed to him and destroy them. I tell you this not to make you afraid, but I tell you this because it would be unloving for you not to know this. It's true. It's true. And you will be judged by Jesus in this coming judgment, not based on what seems normal or an American mindset or your cultural norms or you in comparison to anyone else or your good intentions, but based on the holy word of God. And none of us, not a one of us, measures up. We all fall short. And there is only one protection. If you're wondering, how can you protect yourself from this coming judgment? There's only one way. There's only one way. You can't make an alliance with anyone else. You can't manufacture a God. You can't tell yourself over and over and over again, you'll be okay. You can only find refuge in Jesus Christ. So if you're wondering, if there's something in your soul, like a, there's something that's asking, who, how can I be right with God? I want you to talk to somebody who is a Christian and ask them about Jesus. So you don't have to be special. You don't have to be smart. You just have to be willing to come to Jesus, willing to admit, I am a sinner who needs a Savior. I have sinned, and I do not want to pay for my sins. I want someone else to, and that's exactly what Jesus has done for any who are willing. So if you do not know him, judgment is coming, and you will not be able to avoid it. That's the summons. The summons they've received, that the summons now we receive too. But for those of us here who are Christians, we also have, we have a summons, but that summons is no threat to us. We have actually, in this passage, we have assurance for the rest of the passage, verses 8 through 20, we have an assurance of assistance from God Most High. We have an assurance of assistance from God Most High. He promised to help us in three concrete ways. Verse 8 through 10 tells us that we do not need to be afraid. Look at verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you who I'm t- whom I took from the ends of the earth, And called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. 
I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now you might be wondering how we can take this promise that is so clearly given to Israel and make it our own. How can we do that? That is a wonderful question. But remember, look at that phrase in verse 8 where we see that, that the, the offspring of Abraham are addressed here in verse 8. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 that anybody who trusts in Jesus is the rightful heir of Abraham. Romans 4.16 says, that is why it depends on faith. That's salvation. In order that the promise may rest on grace, grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, that's the Jews, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So when we see in, in Isaiah chapter 41, the address being the offspring of Abraham, he's talking to us. And we can own these promises as our own. The first is that we don't need to be afraid. We do not need to be afraid. They were in the midst of geopolitical upheaval and it was just announced that there was going to rise up a conqueror who was going to conquer the whole world. That's a scary time. But God urgently wants His people to know what? You do not need to be afraid. What does He say? Fear not. Fear not. Now, he doesn't just say, fear not, trust me, it's okay. He gives reasons, and he gives us five reasons. That they, he gives them five reasons they do not need to be afraid. He gives us those same five reasons today. What is it? Fear not. God is with us. That's one reason. Another one, he is your God. He's not somebody else's God. He's not someone else, and he's, he's not just sort of on call for us, and we can kind of use him as we want. He is our God. He will strengthen us. He will help us, and he will uphold us. We do not need to be afraid, come what may. Why? Because God is with us. That is the same today. And He's our God. So any who trust in Jesus know Him to be your Father, your God. He is on your side. He promises also to strengthen you. And what better person to strengthen you than where you are weak? Where you are weak. He knows it. He knows better than you do where you are weak. And He promises to strengthen you. He promises to help you. Notice, help in any way we need it. And even when we fall, He promises that He will uphold us. We do not need to be afraid. No matter what we face. He is with us. But also, I want you to notice the context here. Look at verses 11 and 12. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. But those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. So the Lord is saying, You'll, you don't need to be afraid. But notice specifically what he's telling them they don't need to be afraid of. They're enemies. See that? Those who are incensed against you. 
will be confounded. Do you have someone who considers you an enemy, who speaks against you and spreads lies about you because you've either done the right thing or because you're a Christian? That's very difficult. It's, I can tell you from my own experience, it's much harder than I thought it would be. I never ever in my mind thought I would be the kind of guy who would have people hate me. My dogs like me. I used to think if I'm nice and make a joke or two, everything's going to be okay. But sometimes, pastoral ministry and Christianity in general calls for us to stand up to bullies and say no. And when bullies don't get their own way, they're incensed. And it's difficult. And even though I know that they're lying, and that some of them are liars, it's difficult to know that they are out there against me. Even if you don't have enemies like that, if you're a Christian, I do know that you have an enemy that neither sleeps nor slumbers. And he hates you. He's actively scheming and plotting and working against you right this second. His name is Satan. He's not pretend, and he's not playing around. But we don't need to be afraid. You would think, I don't know. Satan? He's a few thousand years old. He's strong, seems indestructible. And he hates me. And you're telling me I don't need to be afraid? No, you don't need to be afraid. Why? Because we have the Lord who helps us. The Lord is the one who measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. He's the one who helps us. The Lord is the one who has marked off the heavens with the span. He is the one who helps us. The Lord is the one and the only one who can weigh all the mountains in the scales and the, hill and the hills in the balance. He is the one who helps us. He's the one who regards nations as nothing but a drop in the bucket. He is the one who helps us. He's the one who brings princes to nothing. He is the one who helps us. And so here's the question. Why are we afraid? If we are afraid, why are we afraid? No matter what we face, we are, we, we are with the one who has no limitation and promises to uphold us. We do not have to be afraid. Come close to him and experience him, especially if you're afraid. If you're afraid and you have something in your life that is fearful, don't just try to handle it on your own. You can't. If you have fear that rises up in your heart every day or most days or some days, don't just stand aloof. Press into the Lord and see this promise. As Christians, you don't need to be afraid. He is with you. He will strengthen you. He will uphold you. He is your God. Come near to Him. That's our first assurance of assistance. Our second is this. Our first assurance is we don't have to be afraid. Our second is that he empowers us. And this is from verses 14 to 16. Fear not, you worm Jacob, 
you men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away. And the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. Now this promise does not sound, at the beginning, very promising. Did you notice what he called us? Eagles? No. Worms. Worms. No nation has as its mascot a worm. For a reason. Why? Because worms just wriggle and do worm things. They cannot do much. He's not trying to be rude. He's just stating facts. In our own strength, we are as strong as worms. And compared to him, we're less than a worm. And it makes sense with this backdrop why Jesus would say of us, without me, you can do nothing. Why? Because with, without him, we're just worms. Now think of a worm facing the obstacle of a mountain. It's stuck. It's not going to burrow through rock. It's not going to make it. It's just going to wriggle on the ground like this. But, Watch what we see here in verse 14. The Lord reiterates the promise. He says, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. This is the first time we see the word Redeemer in Isaiah. Now, if you've been around church, you know that, it is, that to redeem is, is, a use, is a word we use, and it means to buy someone back in the way we use it at church from slavery. That's true. But there's much more depth to this word as well. Alec Matir says this, Redeemer translates a word for the next of kin, the one who has the right to intervene, taking all the needs and troubles of his helpless relative on himself as though they were his own. That is our Redeemer right there. The one who intervenes, taking on all the troubles and the needs of his helpless relative as if they were his own. No wonder Jesus is called our Redeemer. Jesus intervenes and takes our fears, concerns, worries, anxieties, but most of all, he takes our sins upon himself. He takes our troubles on himself. And even more shocking, the way that he does this was by becoming a worm like us. He intervenes, not just from on high, but he intervenes by coming here and becoming a worm. So that he might offer his own life and save us and buy us back from our enslavement to sin. This is what our Redeemer did. But he also empowers us from weak worms to threshing sledges. Verse 15. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. Now, I doubt any in this room have a threshing sledge. Probably. But it is a wooden board about yay big and yay long that has holes punched in it. 
and some kind of metal or rocks pushed down through those holes so that the sledge was dragged, dragged over grain stalks to cut them up into small pieces. Now this threshing sledge, now think about it like this. If you've ever gone to a baseball game, if you're a baseball fan, when they drag the field between the innings to take the dirt and make it more even, that's the function of a threshing sledge. But they're dragging it over uh, stalks of grain to break it up so that they can access, they can access the fruit more, more immediately. We are now compared to threshing sledges. So in Christ, what, what does that mean? We go from worms to threshing sledges that can crush mountains. Now if you follow, how does that even hold together? How does, like this, if you follow Jesus... You're pulled along by him, just like someone would have to pull along a threshing sledge. And if you are following Jesus, literally, what can stand in your way? What obstacle can stand in your way that can block you from getting where you need to go as you follow Jesus? With Jesus at your lead, what can stop you? Can mountains? No. Can hills? No. We can surmount any challenge from anyone with the help of the transformative promise here in Isaiah. This is the idea Paul takes in the New Testament and expands it. He says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall the mountains of tribulation, I added mountains, but shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We alike are all more than conquerors. Meaning that we, not that we conquer people or people groups, but that we are able to endure through things like tribulation and distress persecution and famine, nakedness and danger and war. We are able, because we are being pulled along by the Father, by the Son, we are able to overcome tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and sword. Following Jesus means that there is nothing, nothing that can block our way. Now, it doesn't take a genius to sense that our world is growing more and more hostile to Christianity. Now, our world has always been hostile to Christianity. If you read history, you, and you, you think there was a time in the, in the past where there was a golden age, there wasn't. The past was not really that golden. But one of the things that's different now is that it used to be, if you believed in Jesus, you were thought of as strange. Today, we're thought of as dangerous. That's a shift. We've gone from strange to dangerous. And it may be that times of persecution lay ahead for our church or for the church. Should we be afraid? I mean, we're just worms, right? What can our adversaries do? Can they make our lives harder? Yes, for sure. Can they call us names? Absolutely. Can they lie about us? You bet. Can they make fun of us? Certainly. 
But ultimately, what can they do to us? Ultimately, nothing. We're being pulled along by our Lord. And there is no barrier that can stand in our way. There is nothing that anyone can put before us that will thwart our growth as Christians. There is nothing. There is no trial. There is no hardship. There is no persecution. There is no trouble that can befall us so as to remove us from the love and purpose of Jesus Christ. Now, we may face a great many things that are difficult. We probably will. But not one of those things is going to be able to separate us from God and His will. That's the idea. Do you feel as weak as a worm? Good. We all are. But the Lord is in, in the business of transforming worms into, like us, worms like us, into threshing sledges, ready to do some work. Not to destroy our enemies, but to persevere in the face of the challenges that we face before us. And this is one of the ways we are to experience God. It's embracing our weakness and trusting in His strength. We do not have strength to handle the days that are to come. We just don't. We don't have enough wisdom. We don't have enough ingenuity. We're not smart enough. We cannot figure out how to avoid persecution should it be coming. But we do have a Lord who promises that He will be with us, that He will be upholding us, that he will take us by the hand and turn us into threshing sledges and he will take us where he wants to take us no matter where that is, no matter through whatever comes, whatever persecution, whatever trial, whatever hardship, whatever, whatever disturbance in our lives, he will take us to where he wants us to go. So we must embrace our weakness, recognize he is the only one who has strength, come close to him so that we might experience his strength. Come. Where are we? We don't have to be afraid. We've heard that's how one way he assists us. Another way is he promises to empower us. And a third way, beginning in verse 17, he promises, God pledges provision. God pledges provision. Verse 17 down to verse 20. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Now this is highly symbolic and debated language, but what we can say for sure here is that Isaiah is describing a desert traveler. Now, we know a thing or two about the desert, and all of us are armed with water bottles to make sure that we don't have to go seven steps without a drink, right? Didn't used to be that when I was a kid. Nobody carried water bottles, but now everybody carries water bottles because 
I think we got smarter. Now, if you're traveling in the desert and you do not have water and you do not have shade, you're in big trouble. Someone in the desert without water and without shade is going to die of thirst and exposure. This is the picture that's being presented here in verses 17 through 20. The Lord sees his people who are poor and needy and need water and cannot find any. Their tongue is parched, meaning it is, it is so dry. And he promises, he says this, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Now notice how the Lord intervenes. He doesn't just make it rain so that water comes. He engineers a complete reversal of nature. He doesn't say, he doesn't redirect them to find a lake that they didn't know was there. The desert, a land of death, becomes lush. Rivers come out of nowhere. Pools of water are all of a sudden right there. And then you've got like seven or eight different kinds of trees that begin to grow. These trees don't provide fruit, but they provide copious amounts of shade. And these trees actually are the trees mentioned in the Garden of Eden. So what we have is something of a reversal of the curse happening here in Isaiah chapter 41. See, all of us, all of us know what it's like to go through a dry and difficult time, and maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe the pressures, the disappointments, and the hardships that you are going through right now in your life are making your soul feel parched because you just don't know where to go to find relief. You try to seek answers. You look to try to find solutions. And all you find is more thirst, more exposure, and more trouble. Can I make a recommendation? Do not look to your own resources. The Lord delights to provide refreshment for his weary people. Now, if I were to say these people need water, and the Lord provides water, but notice how he does it. He opens, verse 18, rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. He will make the wilderness, the desert, a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. So what he does is he provides water and refreshment far more than they could ever imagine in ways that they would never even have conceived of. So what does that mean? It means this. When we cry out to the Lord, it's a good bet that he will refresh us in ways we did not expect. It's a good bet that we who do not understand his ways and cannot imagine his wisdom, he's going to deliver us in ways that we do not expect. See, our call is to come near to him. Our call is not to stay remote. Our God is not far off. Though he is high and lifted up, he is in our midst and he is here ready to strengthen the weak. 
He is here ready to uphold the downtrodden. He is here ready to refresh the weary. He is here ready now to minister to us so that we might experience Him, so that we might know Him, so that we might have confidence in the depth of our souls that we do not have to be afraid anymore, that He will empower us and He will provide for all that we need no matter what we face. We do not have to look to the future wishing and wondering something was, is going to be different or what's going to happen and worry about all that stuff. We can look instead to the future. Instead of looking to the future, we can look to our God, knowing that our God stands ready to intervene. How do we know He's going to intervene? We can look to the past and we see there in Jesus that He has intervened already and He is going to intervene even now, no matter what we face no matter what hardships are coming, no matter what lies around the corner, friend, we do not have to be afraid. Our God is with us. Our God will empower us. Our God will provide for us. We just need to come. Come to Him. I'm going to close here in prayer in just a moment. I just have, I want to pray for those who are just at their end. You're just done. You are just tired. You're weary. The hardship, the trouble, the pressures of life have pushed down on you with more force than the sun down on the desert floor. And you don't feel like you have the strength for one more step. Let me tell you a secret. You don't. The Lord is eager to refresh you and ready to help you. So I'm going to pray for those of you who fall into that category. I'm also going to pray for those here who do not know Jesus and do not believe in Him, that you might come to Him and experience forgiveness. So would you join me as I pray? It is beyond amazing, Lord, that we have a, an audience with you that we can call out to the high and mighty God of the universe and expect you to hear. Not only do we expect you to hear, we are confident that you hear because seated at your right hand is our representative, Jesus Christ. And he is seated there, interceding, with, interceding for us, Lord, and we take our prayers and join them with him. And I want to pray specifically for those people in this room who are tired and weary. Life has got them down and they are being pressed hard by troubles and hardships. They're being scorched. They feel like they've got nowhere to turn. There's no shade. There's no cover. Lord, I pray that you would help them to turn from the situation and the circumstances that they're facing. Turn from those hardships and cry out to you. We know that you are attentive to our cries. You are attentive to our cries for help. And we pray that you would help us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would empower us. We are just weak worms. We pray that you would help us to be empowered for you and your purposes. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be lifted up 
out of the mire, out of the, of the depth, so that we might be able to see You and Your work, Lord. Forgive us for all the times that we've thought that, our, that You are just too small and unable or inept. That is just not the case. Lord, I pray that You would help those who are tired and weary. Maybe it's physical challenges that they're facing. Lord, I pray that You would touch them and give them strength. Maybe it's wayward children. Lord, I pray that You would give hope and, and the, the strength to pray another day for that soul. Maybe it's just disappointment with life. I pray that You would build up and uphold us as we press on to try to follow You. Lord, I just ask that You would... Lord, You know every person in this room and You know those who are right at their end. And I pray, Lord, that You would... I pray You would just meet them in their weakness as they call out upon you and come to you. And I pray collectively, Lord, that as a people, when we think of you, oh God, we would not consider you to be limited in any way, shape, or form, but eager and ready and excited to help us, the weak ones. So I pray that you would change life situations this week. I pray that you would intervene in people's lives this week. I pray also for those here who do not know you. Lord Jesus, there is no greater tragedy than living life outside of you and your purposes, Lord. I pray that they would have the humility to admit their sinfulness and turn to you. Jesus, we are weak, but you are strong. May we continually turn to you and ask for help. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.